Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 99 of the Standard Issue podcast. I'm Mickey Noonan and I have terribly bruised hip bones. Why? From trapeze because oh. I went back to circus. Bloody hell. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'm quite sympathetic. I also need a new fuse box. Feel free to interpret that in any way you like. Have we tried turning her off and on again? Yeah, 350 quid that'll cost you. Oh God, leave her as she is. And I'm Jen Offord, and this weekend I was left wondering if the shop name Liberty is in fact ironic. Did you get locked in there? No, it just felt like a prison of hell, but a really nice smelling one. <laughs> okay. Right. Oh, I thought you meant like they were taking a fucking Liberty. Uh, well, I mean, that would also apply. It's very expensive in there. I didn't go in there for fancy reasons. I went to buy some wool from the haberdashery. Oh, is the knitting still in full flow? I'm actually knitting something for our boss at the moment. Wow. Mm. A baby grow. Yes, <laughs> a giant baby grow. <laughs> She's going to love it. She's going to love it. Later on, I catch up with photographic artist Mandy Barker to talk about her exhibition, Our Plastic Ocean, which is a retrospective of her work addressing the global crisis of marine plastic pollution. And shit me, there is a lot of plastic in our seas. Mm -hmm. I chat to science journalist Zaya Tong about her book, The Reality Bubble and Society's Blind Spots. Oh, I've put my standing up jeans on and I'm sat down. (laughs) Oh dear. (laughs) Oof. I speak to Dr Susie Gage about her new book, Say Why to Drugs and about what the Gavin and Stacey Christmas special can teach us about attitudes to recreational drug-taking. I am intrigued. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I chat to Offside Royal podcast host Kate Borsay about how its new sponsor, Football Manager, has saved the day and the importance of backing women's sport. And in Dunleavy Does Disaster, we watch Independence Day. America, fuck yeah! <laughs> yeah, it's just two and a half hours of that, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. But first, clowns to the right of us, jokers to the left, and absolutely no idea whatsoever where the middle has gone. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue stink. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. A bit funny, a bit informative, like a photograph of a trampoline (laughs) on a neighbour's roof. Tie them down, for fuck's sake, people. It's not hard. Well, perhaps it is, and that's why... Three of them ended up fucking three separate railway lines yesterday. Anyway, remember when Trump said that we call Boris Johnson Britain Trump? <laughs> <laughs> well, while that certainly will never be the case, last week's events at number 10 made President America Johnson look less idiotic. Well, as less idiotic as a man can look when his face appears to have been photoshopped onto itself. Man, that photo. It was <laughs> something else. Isn't it? it was something else. It was terrifying. <laughs> oh, my God. What, the tan line. Yeah. yeah. It's like that bit where Robocop takes like takes his thing off and you can see yeah. all the workings in the back of his brain. I was going to go for John Travolta in Face Off, but similar vibes. Yeah. I still wonder about his hair. Is it a weave? Is it an elaborate comb over? It's going to be like Liberace. <laughs> like, they're going to have to wait till he died to find out the he key was, stuff. He was definitely gay. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> what were we talking about? Anyway, carry on. Anyway, first up came Number 10's attempts to keep certain news organisations out of press briefings, something that prompted a walkout by all political journalists, questions in Parliament, and a lot of righteous chuntering about the role of the press in holding government to account. Number 10's response only aggravated the situation, portraying, as it did, the excluded journalists as trying to barge into a private briefing and demand answers. And I'm going to be honest, even if that was the case, and by all other accounts it wasn't, given the publications they represented included The Mirror and The Independent, 
I still think they'd be in the right because they shouldn't be private briefings. Mm -hmm. It all rather stinks of Dominic Cummings. He has been wearing that tracksuit a while. (laughs) (laughs) Who is unfeasibly satisfied with himself, given he's clearly not got a plan of his own. He's merely mimicking the early days of the current US administration when America Johnson banned (laughs) news organisations he didn't like from White House briefings. Still... At least they're not copying the bit of the plan where idiot relatives are getting involved in the business of, oh, hold up, what's that? Uh Uh-oh. Who is that accidentally CCing the BBC into an email to British officials about a meeting with China's UK ambassador, Lu Xiaoming? It's Stanley Johnson. Oh, Stan. I'm not exactly sure why Britain Trump's dad (laughs) is chatting politics with ambassadors like he is America Johnson's idiot son's. America Uday and America Prince Andrew. I am so confused. (laughs) Johnson explained his actions thus. I was copying in someone who happened to have the same name as a lady at the BBC. These things happen. (laughs) Which was actually the bit of the story I least wanted explaining. We all know how it happens, mate. We've all had an email from Uncle Joe that he meant to send to the Bowls Club. (laughs) But hey, Stanley, it's not the worst thing in the world. That would be the way you raised your kids, especially the one we call Britain Trump. What is he up to? Because he's like, he's supposed to be this kind of benign, I've been on I'm a Celebrity, people seem to sort of like me a bit. He's about as benign now. as cancer. I know. So what, what, what the fuck is this? It's like, you know, remember Harry Enfield started off that whole thing about how if you were famous somehow, your dad had to be famous with you. Yeah. Right. And to be, although to be fair, Harry Enfield's dad was actually very entertaining. And then, like, Jack Whitehall does it. It's like it's it's infected politics now. You have to have your dad involved. Yeah. Oh, God. Meanwhile, over on the left, if you thought news that Jeremy Corbyn's local Labour Party had backed Keir Starmer in the party's leadership election might herald a new period of calm in the proceedings, well, you might want to strap yourselves in, guys. Mm. Seen by many as the natural heir to the acting leader Jeremy Corbyn, Rebecca Long-Bailey, as well as 99.9% of Momentum members, will no doubt have been disappointed that Corbyn's Islington-North constituency Labour Party, that's quite hard to say, narrowly voted to support Starmer, surely establishing him as the clear favourite, right? You'd think so. You would think so, especially given the competition he's up against. Anyway, well, Starmer might not want to start celebrating too soon after it was reported on Sunday that the Labour Party had made a formal complaint against members of his leadership team to the Information Commissioner's Office for hacking the party's membership database. The ICO, which is the UK's independent data protection watchdog, later confirmed that it had received a report of a breach of the membership database. Starmer has denied any wrongdoing by his team in a written letter to the party, while members of his camp said even if they had wanted to, no one on the team would actually know how to do so. I love that answer so much. (laughs) I think it makes sense, doesn't it? Furthermore, Jenny Chapman, who chairs Starmer's campaign, suggested that the allegations were made in response to a complaint made against Long Bailey's campaign team the week before. Are you still with me? And that was for circulating links to the party's phone banks to its volunteers. So a kind of, she started it. Exactly. Oh God. Yeah. So Chapman added, Labour members want a fair contest, and I would say a dignified one, and one that doesn't do further damage to the party. Dream on, sweet dreamer. Yeah. Uh, at this stage, it seems really very likely they'll get it, doesn't it? I actually don't think it was a she started it thing. I think it's a retaliation thing. 
She did it first. Yeah. No, yeah. I think she did do it first. Oh right. Okay. Right. She did do it. Well, first. that's that's how the story goes. Right. Yeah. So then then they've come back and said, well, look what he's doing. What they've accused him of is the very just makes me feel sick. It's the most. I don't know why. It's called data scraping, and it just oh. sounds revolting. Ooh. It makes me feel ill. But like they say, Jenny Chapman's like said this isn't even us, we're not even going to say this was an over-enthusiastic intern. Categorically, it didn't happen, which sounds, I think, credible as a response. Anyone asking, is there anyone worse than Harvey Weinstein taking part in the ongoing criminal trial of Harvey Weinstein might want to look to the monstrous Snatch Weasel's lawyer, Donna Rotuno, who is fast established in herself as, well, a pretty monstrous Snatch Weasel. Let's skip the fact that each day of the trial she wears a pendant that reads not guilty. We'll slide over the moment Rotuno reduced one of the two main accusers in the trial, who alleges she was raped by Weinstein in a New York hotel in 2013, to uncontrollable sobbing during nine hours of relentless grilling, during which the presiding judge had to halt proceedings after the witness suffered a panic attack. We'll even refrain from laughing our tits off at Rotuno's self-identification as the ultimate feminist and just pop that in the shed with the rideable unicorn. No, in the litany of reasons as to why Donna Rotuno is giving Harvey Weinstein a run for his money in the weapons-grade arsehole stakes, the biggest one came in an interview with excellent investigative journalist Megan Toohey for the New York Times. I was almost done interviewing Weinstein's defence attorney when I decided to ask one more question, says Toohey. Had Rotuno ever been sexually assaulted? I have not, she said, because I would never put myself in that position. Aye, aye, aye. Well, that's something I'll certainly feed back to my 15-year-old self who was just walking home from school. Toohey remains a consummate professional and stays incredibly calm in the face of such victim blaming. Rotuno is clearly someone who believes there's such a nonsense as real rape, fully placing the burden of safety on women, as opposed to, you know, men not raping women being the end goal here. In fact, Rotuno goes so far as to say that men need to protect themselves by getting women to sign a consent form before any sort of sexual activity. Just to reiterate, this is for the protection of the man and obviously clearly ignores that consent can be withdrawn at any point. Or coercion. Exactly. So many things are ignored. It's clearly a useful approach if, like Rotuno, you're making a career of defending men in sex crime trials. And make no bones about this, she is very good. She has done this 40 times and lost just once. So just to clarify, Weinstein faces five counts, two of rape, one of forcing oral sex on a former production assistant, Miriam Haley, and two of predatory sexual assault, all of which carries the maximum sentence of life in prison. Do you think she thought to herself one day, whoa, this is a fucking bit of a novel way of making some dosh. I don't or do you think she believes it? She used to be a prosecutor. Women seem to have, like, I don't know, he seems to have ability to make women go bad. I mean, Lisa Bloom had a really good mm. reputation until she got involved with Harvey Weinstein and then started... Mm. That was her thing, like a... defending women in sex crime cases, wasn't it? Oh, Lisa yeah, Bloom, yeah. yeah. So I don't know whether it's all about the money and the money turns people's heads. So I don't know whether he is an incredibly... Whatever, maybe in person, he's really believable and seems credible. That's it. That seems incredible to me. But maybe all these people who say they're feminists aren't really feminists. I mean, the ultimate feminist. There are. Sorry. No, that's Donald Trump. No oh. one's more feminist than Donald Trump. Oh, I forgot. Given the job that he did, he's probably quite charming. He's probably quite good at talking people round well, to his way of thinking, Even right? in Jodie Cantor and Megan Thierry's book, she said, they, they say that he's charming. He's charming on the phone, but he flips. His personality really flips. His That's attitude really flips very quickly. Do. That's what psychopaths do, isn't it? They don't like being challenged. 
What? <laughs> she terrifies me. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Why does anyone want some Why good news? Why are you apologising for her behaviour? <laughs> well done, Jen. Coerced again. <laughs> Don't sign it, Jen. <laughs> Would you like some good news? Oh, yes, yes please. please. Yeah. Okay. So, no, it's not that Labour MP Tracy Braben became headline news last week after a dress she was wearing slipped off her shoulder, the saucy minx, while she was leaning on the dispatch box in the House of Commons. This is an event which led a Question Time audience member, confusingly not my dad, <laughs> to refer to it as a disco outfit. <laughs> <laughs> And some others on good old Twitter, making some rather less benign commentary. Following the furore, Braben tweeted, Sorry I don't have time to reply to all of you commenting on this, but I can confirm I'm not. A slag, hungover, a tart, about to breastfeed, a slapper, drunk, or just been banged over a wheelie bin. Or oh, all of the above. <laughs> yeah. Wow, what a Tuesday that was. Yeah. <laughs> So that isn't the good news. But the good news is that Braben has subsequently decided to auction off the dress on eBay with the proceeds being donated to the Girl Guiding Charity. And at the time of writing, the highest bid had reached £17,200. Is it a dress made of actual money? No. Why is it possibly worth £17,000? Because it does really good business around the back of a wheelie bin. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's great for either slutting up, breastfeeding your baby. It's so multifunctional. It's versatile. (laughs) So you've got till tomorrow to top it. I don't think I can afford it. No, me neither. <laughs> and also, I think my wheelie bin days are well behind me. I certainly can't afford it. Actually, my wheelie bin flew into next door's <laughs> My wheelie bins all fell over. My mum rang me hourly yesterday to inform me other things that had fallen off her house, basically. <laughs> oh, there goes the aerial. She said, oh, was it like the generation game? Yeah, it was. <laughs> she was like, oh, the, um, the, the shed door's blown off. Cuddly toy. And then she rang me to tell me my sister's letterbox had blown in, which is something I still don't understand. The mechanics of that baffle me. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, did you see the story this week about the Brexit Party candidate who wanted to make little shelters for homeless people out of wheelie bins? More news next week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I feel full-hearted because my excellent 16-year-old goddaughter Nicole is getting it right in a world that wants to tell her that, unless she's me in arbitrary beauty standards set by arseholes, she looks wrong. So I noticed that Nick had posted on her Facebook about someone called Shauna Phillips. Turns out Shauna's a contender on ITV's Love Island, the winter edition, which is currently playing, and I don't watch. And I'm not saying that in a snobby way. I know loads of people bloody I love am. it. <laughs> it's just not my bag. Or indeed Hannah's. Or mine. <laughs> or Jen's. So yeah, Shauna, who from what I've read seems like a smart, funny, warm young woman, is getting Twitter shit for her legs. Seriously, she looks like a sort of traditional swimsuit model. But her legs just aren't doing it for the trolls. Many of them young women themselves, clearly hoping to make anonymous bullying some sort of Olympic sport. I'm going to hand over to my Nick for a moment, who wrote, So, just because she's not what today's society sees as the perfect girl, she gets called names. And people question why some girls are so insecure and all want to look a certain way. Every girl is beautiful in their own way. We should all be supporting one another, not bringing each other down. Colour me a very proud godmum, indeed. But what's happening to Shauna is a worrying continuing trend. And she's not the only Love Island contestant facing a barrage of troll feces online, which clearly shows the internet has not learned its lesson. I mean, yeah, I know that's not really a big shock. But two former Love Island contestants have taken their own lives. 
something that doesn't necessarily feel real life to the keyboard ball bags as they spew out their heinous spaff has catastrophic real life consequences. Yeah. I've just looked her up to see what her legs look like. They look like legs. She's got legs. <laughs> I can confirm she does have legs. Now, London. I want you to imagine I'm giving you that look that your mum did when she bought you that really expensive toy you've been nagging her for for Christmas and then you never played with it. If we're going to keep doing shows in London, we need you to turn up. And here's your chance. Consider it your Valentine's Day present to us because our next show is February the 14th where our guests will be actor and all-round gem Pauline Feckin McLean and political correspondent, comedian and withstander of Twitter twattage, Aisha Hazarika. So, if you want to spend Valentine's Day with a bunch of welcoming women, get yourself over to our website, standardissuepodcast.com. I'm joined by Zaya Tong, science presenter and author of The Reality Bubble and board member of WWF International. Hi, Zaya. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Your new book, The Reality Bubble, sort of focuses on the blind spots of humanity. Well, I'm going to ask you to tell me, what does that mean? What's it about? Well, it's really about the fact that there's a lot that's going on in the world around us that we're not able to perceive. I divide the book into three categories. Our biological blind spots, things that we can't see with the naked eye. Our societal blind spots. These tend to be willful blind spots, things that we kind of deliberately don't look at. And civilizational blind spots. So these are blind spots that we've passed on from generation to generation. And really, the thing for me is working with scientists for the last 15 years, and working with scientists from all different fields, I notice that they all see the world in a different way. So for example, marine biologists are looking deep under the ocean with their submarines and their particular tools. Astronomers are looking in a totally different dimension, really, far, far away using their telescopes. But they all have a particular lens on life. And having spoken to so many different scientists, I started to notice that there were some similarities in what they were able to see and some differences. And I started to wonder, what would happen if I parsed that picture together? What kind of grand image of reality would I begin to see then? And that's the result in this book. When you say things that we can't perceive, things that we basically choose not to perceive, and things that we're trained to see, so can you give me some examples of what, what you kind of mean by those things? For sure. So if we were to look at, say, biological blind spots, one of the first people I talk about is the father of microscopy, Van Leeuwenhoek. And, you know, in the 1600s, he started grinding down glass until he could see in a pot of water these tiny little animalcules. And at the time, the Royal Society thought he was a charlatan or completely mad because nobody knew, like, there were no invisible creatures running around, you know what I mean? He looked in the, in the plaque, the batter, the white batter in his teeth, mm. and he discovered all these, you know, hundreds of thousands of little creatures in there. And that's a biological blind spot for all of us. None of us see this world, and yet, absolutely, it patently exists. And so we had to wait for science to sort of catch up with this reality until it could break through and we could see through this other world and this other universe. Similarly, I would say, in terms of our societal blind spots, I think a lot of people are aware that, um, and, and I, I had a bit of a realization when I was writing this book, that in the 21st century, there are cameras everywhere, 
except where our food comes from, where our energy comes from, and where our waste goes. So yeah, I mean, I just thought it was really quite crazy, right? Yeah. How is it that we're the most powerful species on earth, and yet we're blind to how we survive? Because we don't want to know. We don't want to know. Exactly. So on the one level, if you took where our food comes from, and only a small part of this book talks about slaughterhouses, for example... Another part looks at the whole sperm industry. I call it the jizz-biz in the book. Jizz-biz, I like that a lot. Yeah. And, you know, without Van Leeuwenhoek, we would, who discovered the sperm, we would have never been able to create an entire industry based on sperm. And because none of us are paying attention to this industry today, keep in mind 90 to 95% of the animals that we have, our domesticated animals, our, our pigs and our cattle, they don't have sex. This is all in vitro. In fact, none of the turkeys in the world have sex. This is all in vitro. And because we control the dial on their numbers, today we have 70 billion domesticated animals in the world. Only 3% of our animals are wild animals in terms of vertebrate biomass left on our planet. And this is because we're not looking and we're not paying attention. So that's a different level of blindness. One of the biggest examples, I guess, maybe climate change. I guess it's cognitive dissonance in a way, isn't it? We, we or a lot of us, are aware that it's happening, mm-hmm. but we choose to distance ourselves from our own actions that are contributory to mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So there are obviously things that it would benefit us to know more about or to choose to know more about. And it's interesting that we, that we don't want to know. Why do you think we can benefit from learning more about that? Well, I think when you talk about climate change, which is something that I only touch on briefly in the book, it's really about the fact that it's an invisible beast, right? The apocalypse is an invisible beast. We don't see it. We don't see all the animals disappearing with the sixth mass extinction. We're not seeing all the biodiversity loss. We're not seeing our water disappearing. We're not seeing the CO2 that is, you know, pumped out into the atmosphere. We don't see the entire concoction, which is about to blow up in our faces. (laughs) And I describe it like being like a poltergeist, right? Poltergeists are scary because you can't see them and you can't see the threat. I mean, if you could throw a little towel on top of a little baby poltergeist running around, you might not be quite so scared. And today we have the tools, the scientific tools, to be able to see the threats that are coming. And so the book is really pointing the way and kind of pointing out what the apocalypse truly looks like so that we can, we can make it a little bit easier to deal with, in a, in a sense. Make it less scary, in a way, too. It makes the inevitable collapse of humanity less scary. Perhaps the inevitable, yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, one thing that my friend Joel Solomon always says, because it's true, we're already at 1.1 degree warming. We've got feedbacks coming in. I'd be very surprised if we hit 1.5. I'll be shocked, actually, if we hit 1.5. We're, we're really getting closer to 2 and 3 degrees of warming. Mm-hmm. But we can work on a softer landing. And that's what I'm interested in at this point. Do you think that's possible at this stage? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's people who are working on the science of mitigation, climate yeah. mitigation, that yeah. stop this from happening. And then there's a lot of people who are working on adaptation. adaptation yeah. And I think the adaptation piece is huge right now because we can start to do things that can prevent a lot of the disasters in the years ahead. And so I'm interested in the scientists who are also working on that. You're a board member at WWF International. And so you do a lot of work in this field, science and and whatnot. But why did you want to write this book? What drew you to this subject? What, What fascinates you about it? There are many things that fascinate me about it. I think I've always wanted to write a book that's about awe and wonder and enchantment. So there's a huge component of the book that is really about that. I was always drawn to natural history shows and, you know, watching David Attenborough, obviously, like all British kids when I was young. I was like, oh, what do you mean the animals are actually secretly doing this in their lives? You know, it's just uh, super wonderful that way. 
But at the same time, this book is, it's a political science book in the sense that it is not poli-sci, but it is political and about science. And it weaves those two things together. And I think that's probably the one thing that makes it different. And, you know, I was also curious about the fact that so much was happening to this beautiful world, but people were looking away. So why are they looking away? It's so important and so critical for us now to see. But I was starting to realize that, you know, people turn away for various reasons. People turn away because they're scared. People turn away because they're disgusted. People turn away because they simply can't even see or understand something. If you can point new ways to seeing, that's all I'm really interested in, this, this journey with new eyes, as Proust says, right? And uh, you can be in the exact same place. And if you show somebody how to see, they can begin to see the world in a profoundly new way. And I really hope that that's the outcome of the book. And I feel like some people, that's, you know, what they come away with is a sort of epiphany. And so that's really the goal. One of the things we talk about quite a lot at the moment in terms of bubbles is, for example, political bubbles or little vacuums that we live in when we don't see other people's points of view. But also we live in a world where, you know, we're told people don't like facts anymore. They're not interested in experts, as, as one of our wonderful ministers, Michael Gove, he's not wonderful, once said... We are driven by emotions now, and I think if you look at political events in the UK and the US, for example, you can see that it doesn't appear to be very much the case. What do you think about that? Do you think that that's why people are able to ignore these things that are going on around them in in the sort of scientific sphere? I think it's, of course, very dangerous that we've turned fact into opinion. I think that's ridiculous because, for example, as I said to you about Van Leeuwenhoek earlier, it's a fact that there are little creatures living in your mouth, right? For somebody to say that that's not a fact is patently untrue. So when people start twisting scientific truth, that's a seriously dangerous thing to start to do. But at the same time, human beings have always been storytellers. And so if you actually want to get a point across, you have a much better chance. And that's why I wrote the book the way I did, by telling you little stories. Because stories are more interesting and they can be funny. I can't remember half the facts in my book. I have so many facts in my book and I know I peppered the stories with them. But the stories come first and hopefully your your facts serve to buffer them in a certain sort of way. But um, facts are deadly important. And it is very engaging for what covering some quite heavy subjects. I could have written this book in a year, and yeah. it took me a year to write the book uh, from beginning to end, the first draft. But it took me five years to think about writing the book because I was very committed to not writing an environmental book. And in fact, the the word environmental, I think, appears once or twice because I just made it a point to not write it, and then I could insert it at the very end as a, as a bit of a joke to myself. But I really wanted to write a book that was going to trip people out, that was going to be weird and wiggy and fascinating. And and that is why The New Scientist compared it to The Matrix, because it's a lot more about revealing and layers and, um, yeah, lifting the veil for Mm. people rather than... Now, make sure that you don't defore, do, you know, deforest this area. or It's just not that kind of book, because yeah. I would never read that book. Because yeah. I think we all have a sense that we know that things are going very wrong. And I don't think we like to be told that. And I, I know, having been a TV presenter now for 15 years, that you have to tell stories a little bit differently. Because, for example, at 7 p.m. when people would come home and watch my show that I was on, the last thing you can do after people have left the rat race is be like, And now, 7 o'clock, doom! You know, you just can't do that. People turn away. And so we would trick people on our show. We would do things, we would do stories on the Iditarod. Do you know what the Iditarod is? So the Iditarod is a dog race that takes place in the Arctic, right? You need snow. 
And we would do stories on the fact that they'd have to bring in snow because there's no snow up there anymore because of climate change. And that's how you can start talking to people about a really serious issue, but do it in a way that's, you know, coming at it kind of orthogonally. On Tuesday, the 11th of February, which was yesterday, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, it was International Day of Women and Girls in Science. So... I wanted to ask you a little bit about, because your background isn't sort of strictly speaking scientific, so how did you end up here? Yeah, it's, a, it's an odd route. You know, I became really quite fascinated by technology. So I started working in the very first dot-com boom in New York when that was all happening. And so working in technology, one of the first jobs that I had after the dot-com bust was at Wired. I did their TV show. I did another science show that I directed and that I hosted. Then I got called away to do another science show, Nova Science Now on PBS with Neil deGrasse Tyson. By then I had three science shows in my back pocket. And then, uh, and then I joined Daily Planet, which was my fourth show that I hosted for a decade. And so my entry into that world was definitely through technology. But my background is very, very diverse in terms of my education. I have a master's in communication. And there I was, it was still tech-based. It was really focused on, um, at that time, how we were wiring up Africa with fiber optic cable, which is communications, obviously, but the technical aspect of it. And I was fascinated because that's, you know, we were starting to wire up the whole world and, you know, we were starting to get connected in a very new way during the dot-com boom anyway. So that was my entry into the world. And, and of course, my early love for David Attenborough and, uh, you know, for David Suzuki and for Jane Goodall. I met her when I was 21 right here. That really kind of paved the way. I knew that I wanted to be able to blend those worlds. So... I started working in science and tech. Yeah, I was going to say, well, that's exactly what you've done. (laughs) So you're not a scientist, but obviously you've been working in the world of science and technology for 15 years, as you say now. It's sort of a notoriously difficult place for women and girls to exist. They're not really sort of encouraged into it, although I think that is changing a bit. What does the world sort of look like for women in STEM, I guess, at the moment? In terms of the roles that I've seen women and girls play, I don't want to say it's an uphill battle, but I certainly feel that the the biggest boosters of women in science and STEM are other women. There are some men. I know exactly who those men are. There's a lot of people in the science comm world that, uh, you know, talk a big talk, but they certainly don't walk a big walk. That's yep. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the ones that are always tweeting about women in science. But when it comes to actually giving, giving women opportunities, I don't, I don't see that happening, those doors opening in that way. But women in science and engineering help other women open the doors. And uh, in particular in engineering, I'm connected to a lot of female engineers and they're wonderful. They're just truly creating space for other women. Yeah. In terms of the sciences, I, I think that because there's been a big boom in terms of the popularity, popular science is growing, it's growing on the internet, on the web, but I still don't see nearly as many female science communicators as I would like to, not even close. What do you think can be done about that? Well, I think that, for example, science, but in particular, again, engineering, because I would say most people don't know what engineering is, um, and I learned about it by working with engineers. There's materials engineers, civil engineers, there's so many different kinds of engineers, yeah. they build our world. I think fundamentally what needs to happen is a rebranding of how fascinating it is, right? It sounds like the most dull, boring, dry... Yeah, no, it does. Even STEM is not a particularly sexy... No. No, it's like a really kind of geeky acronym. And I want people to realize, no, actually, scientists 
are like reality testers, right? That's all they're doing is they're almost all of them are playing with an invisible world, right? Whether it's Newton with gravity, whether you're talking about Einstein and like time and space or Van Leeuwenhoek who's telling you about the animalcules, we couldn't see any of this. And they're the ones that poke and poke through the reality bubble, really, and show us this whole other way of seeing the world. And if you can make it fascinating and interesting and wondrous and enchanting, then everybody will want to get involved. The reality bubble is available now. It's published in the UK by Canongate and I presume available from all good bookshops and indeed online. What else are you up to? I've just been elected a new board member at the World Wildlife Fund International. Uh, I served for eight years on the board of World Wildlife Fund Canada. And so this is just a really new, exciting adventure for me because we've got a lot to do in this coming decade. As you know from the United Nations, we've got about 10 years left if we want to get things down to 1.5 degrees. So uh, I'm, I'm just really up for the challenge right now. Where can we follow you so we can sort of see what you're up to? Oh, thank forward. you. I hope we follow each other. I'm on Twitter at Ziyatong, Z-I-Y-A-T-O-N-G. And my handle is rhymes with papaya. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Such a pleasure. Hello, Mickey here, interrupting, but to tell you how you can find out more about us. And that is if you want to follow us on Twitter. Standard Issue is at Standard Issue UK. I'm at Mixed Noonan. Hannah is at That Dunleavy. And Jen is at Inspire Jen. And you can find out more about our views, opinions, and general nonsense if you follow us over there. Look forward to having a natter. Hi, I'm joined on the phone by Dr. Susie Gage, psychologist and epidemiologist at the University of Liverpool host of the podcast Say Why to Drugs and now author of the book Say Why to Drugs. Hello, Suze. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I see you've, on Twitter you've been very, very busy as author of new books, Say Why to Drugs. What has that been like? It's really fun, but it's also quite, it's sort of a combination of overwhelming and underwhelming at the same time. <laughs> because I'm used to doing podcasts where people listen to them on the first day and then that's kind of the big day. The actual day when your book comes out is quite underwhelming. Nothing really happens. <laughs> it's great. And it was wonderful to see people sending me pictures of it having arrived in the post or if they've seen it in bookshops and that kind of thing. That's amazing. But it also seemed like it took a while to arrive in some bookshops. So I'd go into a shop and be really excited and they wouldn't have their stock of it yet. And I'd be like, oh. Okay, hopefully it'll arrive at some point. <laughs> so it's, been, it's been strange, but good. Can I ask you how you found writing it as someone who usually, I know you do write at work, but that's kind of academic writing. How was the actual process of sitting down and getting it done? Well, I actually, so I started off when I was, when I started my PhD, I started a science blog. So I did actually do quite a bit of sort of science writing for uh, the public, whoever the public are when I was first starting doing public engagement and it's only really recently that I sort of changed to podcasting but even so writing a book is very very different to writing a sort of 800 word thousand word blog which you can tend to do in sort of a day maybe two if you want to do loads of research but this this took took two years and because I was also working full-time while doing it lots of it was done in kind of evenings and weekends and yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's quite a different style of, of working, which took a bit of getting used to. Yeah. But I found it really rewarding. I liked kind of going down rabbit holes of research and not feeling like there was a deadline. So I could spend 
lots of time going really in depth into something and deciding whether I wanted to include it or not. And that didn't feel like a sort of waste of my time. It felt like it was all working towards the goal. In that two-year period, did anything change in terms of policy or in terms of emerging new drugs? Oh, because... God, every, everything changed. <laughs> <laughs> to the point where the, uh, about midnight before the last, last, absolute last final draft was due in, I was desperately trying to add some stats that had been published that morning uh, because I wanted to include them. And I, I also just spotted that I'd written, cannabis is now legal in X countries meaning to go back to it and had not done it because it kept changing and then quickly adding in a number to that before it got sent off to the printer, basically. But then even that, a week after I'd signed off on the text, a ketamine nasal spray for depression. I can't remember if it was in the UK or the US, but somewhere decided to approve this ketamine nasal spray for depression, whereas I'd written in the book that at the moment, nowhere is it. Okay. <laughs> so that is immediately out of date already before the books even come out. So. I think that's going to happen a lot in this field. Well, that's why, in a way, that's why your drug exists, your drug, your job exists, because drugs do sort of function in a kind of cyclical nature, don't they? Well, they're just complicated and they've got more than one kind of use or place that they exist. So what I really found interesting when I was researching the book, that I sort of knew that the scale of it hadn't really dawned on me until I started looking into it was just how many drugs that we think of as sort of recreational drugs that people use for fun are also have either been in the past or are now medicinal products as well, either being used sort of the ketamine being on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines, for example, or drugs like cannabis that used to be used a lot back in sort of Victorian times and are now being reinvestigated again, and even things like psychedelics, nitrous oxide, you know, there's so many that are sort of drugs we think of as drugs that people use sort of outside of medical settings, but also they they have more than one purpose. They can be a medicine, but also can be potentially quite risky if they're used in other ways. Is that a case that we that we discover ways to make medicinal drugs recreational or we find ways to make recreational drugs medicinal or is it a bit of both? <laughs> I think there's probably a bit of both but also I'm not sure it's that like there's lots of medicinal drugs that would never be recreationally used because they just don't do any of the things that people want from recreational drugs so they need to be have this kind of psychoactive element that they impact on the central nervous system and change either like perception or mood or energy levels you know this kind of thing they need to have some reason that they might be used recreationally and lots of medications don't but the ones that do i think it could operate in both directions but probably the reason that they first get discovered particularly synthetic ones will generally have been discovered by um, a sort of medical chemist who's trying to research substances for medical use and then they might go down another way another route whereas natural ones it's probably the opposite that someone first tries it because they're curious rather than because they're looking for a treatment for something we just had a general election let's not think too much about that um and in that general election a lot of the manifestos contained something about drugs which hasn't been true for a while I thought it seemed noticeable that suddenly drugs were back on the agenda when it came to politics. Is that something that just happens in in politics? I think that's a new thing. I mean, I can never tell with this whether it's just because I 
am more embedded in this field now that I notice these things more than I did 10 years ago when I wasn't researching it. But it does feel to me like the public consciousness is changing around drugs and that therefore means that politicians are starting to realise that it's, this is something that's of public interest. I mean, it's, it's sort of what's leading what. I went to a, um, a drug policy reform group called Transform, who are based in Bristol, put on a few days of events a couple of weeks ago called Bristol Takes Drugs Seriously. And they had an exhibition at Colston Hall in Bristol. And one thing I noticed was that pretty much every political party has a drug policy group and they were all represented at this event. And I think that's really interesting that I know a lot of them have just recently set up Twitter accounts because I had a sort of flurry of uh, uh, being followed by these various accounts. So I think that's really interesting that it is something that across the different political parties, policy is an issue that people are talking about more. Now, funny you say about public opinion, because you tweeted something recently (laughs) that I found absolutely fascinating. And it was about a conversation you had had with a taxi driver about (laughs) about whether marijuana would ever be legal. And he thought it would. And the reason he thought it would was because... Nobody had been concerned that people got stoned in the Christmas episode of Gavin and Stacey. And I have to give him his due. I think that's about as sensible a gauge of public opinion as any survey. Yeah. I suppose that happens to you a lot. You tell people what you do for a living and everyone gives you their view. I have good conversations in taxis, definitely. But I think that's partly due to the calibre of taxi drivers in Liverpool. They're very, very interesting people quite often and and like to talk. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I think I'm lucky in that regard that when people ask me what I do, it generally means that we've got a 20-minute conversation ready to go because people have opinions on it. But I, I... hadn't I hadn't thought about it at the time when I was watching Gavin and Stacey but thinking about what he said I really kind of agree not just because it was in there and it didn't create a sort of outcry but the way that it was presented as something that sort of middle-aged people in suburbia like not cool not edgy not young people not delinquent not the usual way that drugs like illicit drugs are portrayed in the media but just sort of quite mundane in a way that's a new way of seeing cannabis in sort of public or like very uh widely consumed entertainment media yeah i can't think of another example like that no i mean i i have to say i agree with him yeah, because because that's how I suppose that's how you change public perception is that it becomes normalised. I I was I went travelling. Well, I went on a very long holiday with my mum last year. We went to uh, Canada and to New England, and throughout those areas, cannabis is pretty much legal now. And I was amazed how much advertising there was saying you can buy this here come here grow this here and having spent three weeks with my mum I have to say I really really fancied a spliff at the end of that Mm -hmm. um my mum's attitude was that I shouldn't go off and buy some because in her mind because it's illegal at home it's still illegal which I find quite interesting given that it wasn't illegal where I was it's yeah I think it's amazing what our sort of cultural um norms influence us in that way but then other people have the exact opposite thing where they go somewhere where it is and go oh well it's like something that they would never consider doing 
and suddenly they really want to just because there's a sort of legal change that nothing's necessarily changed about the substance or their kind of attitudes. It's just that legality for some people is really important. Yeah, I mean, hence loads of stag parties in Amsterdam. Exactly. Was there something when you were writing this that you didn't know before you set out to do this? Loads. Let me try and think of a good one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lots of these drugs have really, really interesting histories. I think the history of nitrous oxide in particular is completely fascinating. So sort of Humphrey Davy and the uh, pneumatic centre in Clifton in Bristol and organising, uh, I can't remember what he called them now, but parties where the sort of well-to-do of the age would go in a take nitrous oxide and get very giggly and, and <laughs> sort of treated like this. And then, But that meant the kind of medical side of it was almost downplayed. And I think that's really, it took a while for its medical use to sort of shine through because it had been seen as this sort of parlour trick almost. And I think that's quite interesting and potentially relevant to the way that we're treating something like cannabidiol or CBD now. There are some really interesting studies going on at the moment looking at the use of CBD as a medication for various conditions. I think childhood epilepsy is the one where it's, or a particular kind of childhood epilepsy is the one where it's showing the most promise at the moment, but there's lots of other stuff going on as well. But alongside that, this whole CBD as a kind of aspirational wellness product um, at doses that are far, far lower than the doses that are being shown to have any clinical effect and being put in everything from sort of coffee to hummus to ice cream to tea bags, you name it, is potentially really undermining that that potential medicinal value that it might have as it's being sort of treated in this this kind of non-medicinal, non-regulated way, but as a sort of, oh, this will make you just feel generally better, more well. Well, I mean, that's kind of the question about the legalisation of drugs is that's then you're going to introduce capitalism to it and who knows where it's going to go then because people will try and sell somebody anything, won't they, if there's money in it for them. Yeah, because when you, it's interesting to look at the different ways that legalisation is being done around the world and because there's, there's legalisation and then there's legalisation. So in the US, they've definitely gone down the kind of buyer's market anything is available i'm talking about cannabis yeah um you can get really really high thc so high potency cannabis um you can get it in all sorts of preparations you can get it in sort of sweets and candies and cookies and lollipops and this kind of thing in a way that's potentially not thinking about the sort of public health side of what goes along with making a substance legal. Whereas if you look at other countries like Uruguay, for example, they've gone down a very different route where um, there's a cap on the potency of THC that you can have in cannabis that you legally buy. Um, certain products aren't available. You have to go and get it through. I think you have to, you can only buy it in pharmacies. So there's, sort of, there's so many different ways that you could do legalization. And that's something that's maybe sometimes missed in these conversations is that it's not just a case of it'll become a free for all. You can you can control the substance still, even if it's legal. But then you have to kind of tread the line between making the product appealing enough that the black market supply will be less appealing because the product is is 
doing what people who want to take it wanted to do yeah versus it just being a complete free-for-all and people who would never normally consider taking it would be using it and potentially experiencing harms from doing so so it's really there's a really fine line to tread I think something else that fascinates me about drugs at the moment is that the next generation the the generation younger than me they're very clean living Alcohol consumption is down amongst young people. Obviously, veganism is up amongst young people. Is there a noticeable difference in drug taking in that generation? The evidence is a little bit mixed at the moment. It does seem like it might be a little bit lower. But what's kind of interesting about, in particular, the alcohol is that, in general, young people are drinking less. But when they do drink, they tend to drink to excess just as much, if not more, than the generations before them so it's sort of the behaviors are potentially becoming more extreme and I've just I'm I've got a research paper that's kind of looking at the links between lifestyle behaviors and mental health in two groups of 14 year olds and how that's changed over the last 10 years and we found some quite interesting patterns suggesting that fewer people are doing some of these risky behaviors but the people who are are doing it more to extremes right that makes sense so we're kind of getting the sort of far end of the spectrum and i think there's more to be done to really untangle what's going on in sort of young people's substance use behaviors and and that kind of thing so i don't feel confident enough that i know the data well enough if that makes sense i want to do a bit more digging before i really say what's going on But I think it's really interesting and it's definitely something we need to keep an eye on. And it seems like not thinking about young people, but thinking about in general in the UK, deaths from drug use are going up, even while drug use isn't particularly going up. So something something not quite right is going on at the moment. And that, again, is quite hard to interpret, whether it's just that we've got an ageing drug-using population. So obviously... Everyone has to die at some point, so maybe that's what we're seeing. Yeah. But also, we've had a lot of drug treatment services being closed down over recent years as well. So maybe that's also got something to do with it, that it's much harder for people who are experiencing problems with their substance use to get any support for that. This has been really interesting. I'm always really interested talking to you. So say why to drugs in all good bookshops? Probably, hopefully, and then they're not very good ones too. <laughs> what about the podcast yeah the podcast is going we've got a few really great episodes coming up um doing a live podcast on the 7th of march at vault festival in london oh excellent um yeah so lots lots more to come one just went out this very morning thank you so much for your time Suze. thank you Hello, I am joined on the phone by international award-winning photographic artist Mandy Barker. Mandy, hello. Hello, nice to speak with you. Lovely to speak with you. So your new exhibition at Waterside Arts in Sale is a retrospective called Our Plastic Ocean and it addresses the global crisis of marine plastic pollution. Can you tell us more about the exhibition? Yes, I mean basically the exhibition spans my work for the past 10 years. I first discovered the problem about 12 years ago and I thought it would be a really good idea to let other people know what was going on on my local beach. This inspired kind of the work from 10 years ago up until the present day, and that's what's included in the exhibition. Your work is really striking, and it's beautiful, which sort of seems the opposite of the damage you're actually cataloguing. 
There's a reason for that, and that is to sort of draw the viewer in, something that's sort of aesthetically beautiful, and then hit them with the hard-hitting facts, the captions behind the images and what the images represent. First of all, I started photographing plastic as it was found on the shore uh, in a documentary sort of a style, and people weren't really interested. I found that people didn't really engage for long, so the idea is to sort of draw people in and make them remember what they've seen. Obviously, we're doing audio. Could you give us a little description of one of your pieces or a couple of your pieces? Yes, of course. Basically, I try to recreate what would be happening under the sea. So I collect plastic from shorelines all around the world. I bring it back to the studio and then I photograph it on a black background. So essentially, the background is black and then there's lots of pieces of plastic, um, objects that can range from plastic turtles to toothbrushes to all the different types of objects found in the sea and these are arranged on the background and when the image is finished they look almost like a suspension of plastic in the ocean so it's a kind of a mass accumulation in one image yeah a lot of them look like sea creatures yes some of them do that was um, kind of happened by accident i was photographing a plastic bag initially for one of my first series and when i looked through the lens i kind of saw an octopus soak from the plastic bag and as I carried on, a few of the other plastic bottles and things like that almost looked like fish. So it started off as an accident, but yeah, that's kind of continued throughout the work and people see all different things in the images. The numbers surrounding plastic pollution in the oceans are absolutely staggering. There's between 4.8 and 12.7 million tonnes of plastic entering the ocean each year. And that was according to figures published in the journal Science in 2015. And there are 5.25 trillion pieces of plastic debris in the ocean do you think joe and joan public realize how bad the situation is there's a lot of information at the moment over the last two years you know coverage in the media has really increased and i think this has helped public awareness um, whether people know the extent of what's already existing there i don't really know i mean that's part of my job is that as well as being an artist, I do lots of talks, you know, to try and engage the public in what's actually happening and mm-hmm. what's existing out there. Probably they don't know the numbers. And I think sometimes people can turn off when they're told all these sort of large numbers because they can't really imagine it. Yeah. Um, so this is why I create sort of a visual image to try and represent this mass accumulation and show all these little bits going into infinity to kind of represent those numbers. I imagine when you're putting your work together, it can have a pretty devastating emotional effect. It can, yes. And there are various projects that I've done involving animals that have been, you know, really quite emotional. Um, I went to Lord Howe Island at the beginning of last year to make a project concerned with birds that are actually ingesting plastic. And to see them kind of, you know, plastic being removed from their stomachs was really an emotional experience, um, you know, to be involved with that project. As you mentioned earlier, you've been documenting this uh, catastrophic mess we're making of the oceans for a long time, like 10 to 12 years. How did you get into it? Personal experience. I'm from Hull originally on the East Coast. So as a child, I used to walk on the beaches there and collect driftwood and shells and natural objects. I've always enjoyed being on the beach. And over the years, returning to Hull and returning to this particular beach, uh, began to notice that there were less natural objects and more rubbish was washing up. Mm-hmm. And I had a defining moment when I visited one day and saw um, a fridge freezer and a children's car seat uh, and a computer casing. And I just wondered how on earth these things got into the sea. Oh, my God. So that inspired me to create work through photography to try and let other people know what was going on. And how are like things like that? 
getting into the sea. I guess I can understand how plastic bottles get there and the, the obviously the microbeads and various little bits of plastic debris, but a fridge freezer seems outrageous. Yes, at this particular time, and from the evidence I got, these particular items were probably dumped at sea and have since washed up, of which, you know, that's totally banned now and shouldn't be going on. But at this particular point, um, whenever it had happened, fishermen had clearly seen rubbish being dumped into the sea. I think obviously most people know that the biggest impacts will come from changes by big companies through legislation by governments. But what would you like to see individuals doing? If individuals stop buying the plastic that these big corporations are churning out endlessly, hopefully they won't need to make any more. You know, as you say, it has to come from governments. It has legislation has to be in place because a lot of the time, you know, the guilt's put on the public for the problem and mm-hmm. it you know, if the plastic wasn't there as an option for them to buy, then they wouldn't be buying it and there wouldn't be litter. So alternatives need to be made, Um, you know, sustainable alternatives, not kind of rushed into something that might be more detrimental, but things that can be disposed of properly. And manufacturers and corporations have a responsibility to clean up the plastic that they put out. In one of your most recent exhibitions, you studied the fact that plankton is now ingesting plastic as well. Yes, that's right. It's right at the bottom of the food chain. It is, and that was what particularly shocked me. It was a scientific um, experiment that I'd seen done at one of the universities in the UK, and I thought this was a really important thing to highlight because, as you say, at the bottom of the food chain, everything above that, you know, eats plankton, the fish, you know, even getting to whales, and eventually those sorts of things, fish, ends up on our food plates. So the impact on human health is still something that's very unknown and needs to be researched. It can't be good, the fact that we're kind of eating, breathing and sleeping in plastic. No. You've mentioned science there and I've seen some of your talks which are brilliant on that their YouTube and you talk about giving science a visual voice. What is it you would like people to take away from your images? I'd like people to be disturbed. I don't want them to be too upset and I don't want them to get anxious because you know there's a lot of um, there's enough around there at the moment with all the climate change problems that people are having and I just would like people to be aware of the plastic issue, to be aware of what's ending up in the ocean and to try and refuse or reuse as much plastic as they can. So inevitably, these plastic items won't end up in the sea. A lot of plastic items aren't necessary. You know, packaging, single-use plastics, they're just not needed. And if we stop using these things, then hopefully manufacturing will slow down and, you know, they won't be churning out the amount that they do. If people can just think, you know, it doesn't have to be anything huge, you know, it can be just to refuse plastic, bottle and a bag, and just choose an alternative or reuse something they've already got. If everyone, you know, makes a small change, then collectively that could have a big impact. The big corporations don't make it easy, though, do they? Like, obviously, if you, if you shop local, then obviously that's way better for the environment as well. But if you need to use supermarkets, which a lot of, a lot of people do, whether that's for, for financial reasons or like they're dis- disabled, so that's the closest shop they can get to, everything is wrapped in plastic. Like Sainsbury's in particular, like all the grapes are in cartons, like you get bananas in plastic. It's just, it's just ridiculous. How do we, how yeah. do we fight that? Well, there was an initiative last year where, um, you know, particularly a certain type of crisp bag and a lot of crisp bags, they're not recyclable. So there was a day when everyone posted crisp bags into letterboxes uh, around the UK, which I'm not suggesting should go on. But that was a standpoint. People have returned on certain days all their packaging that they've got from the supermarket in one week and taken it back and put it on the checkouts. These sorts of things inconvenience and get attention, but ultimately sort of signing petitions 
and trying to reach a higher level is what needs to be done. But I think if the public make a stand and, you know, make these points, you know, they get into the media and, you know, all those things help in trying to persuade the government to, you know, provide legislation. Do you consider yourself an activist as well as an artist? The two are very intertwined, yeah. Um, Through photography, I've become obsessed about the issue because I was so shocked myself when I initially discovered what was going on around the world. And yes, through my work, I guess I am active in providing awareness about the issue. What are you up to at the moment? What are you working on? Uh, I'm just producing new work from an expedition I went on last year. I was lucky enough to go on an expedition with scientists to Henderson Island, which is right in the middle of the South Pacific. It's one of the remotest places on the planet. And in 2017, scientists declared it the most plastic polluted beach in the world. And it's more than 5,000 kilometres from a nearest major landmass. So all the plastic that's accumulated there has travelled from other lands to get there. And it's an uninhabited small island with endemic species that exist nowhere else in the world. So the potential impact for affecting this amazing kind of UNESCO World Heritage Site is particularly shocking. Uh, and I accompanied the scientists there and the cleanup organisation to make new, new research as to what's going on there and also clean up the beaches while we were there. That's so sad, isn't it? But I guess that the very tiny silver lining there is that the impact of a beach that hasn't been cleaned up because there's no one there to clean up is going to be a very powerful image. Yes, exactly, yeah. To get the opportunity to go somewhere like this is something, you know, which is quite unbelievable to me still. Um, But, you know, I have a responsibility that I've been granted the trip to get there and most people will never be able to see this place. So I have a responsibility to let people know what's going on through my work and through my images so that people can realise it's not just on their own doorstep but it's actually affecting these kind of remote places around the world. Mm -hmm. Well thank you so much for making us aware of all this stuff. Where can people find out more about what you're up to? People can look on my website if you look at Mandy Barker Photography. I have various different exhibitions around the world more or less all the time. You can see my continuing work and uh, where things are published, etc. on Instagram. Uh, again, Mandy Barker Photography. I think that's probably the best way to follow what I'm doing at the moment. Our Plastic Oceans is at Waterside until March the 7th and you can catch Mandy at her artist tour there on February the 20th. Go to watersidearts.org for more details. Mandy, thank you so much for chatting to me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we tell our big brothers it's okay if they want to spend another 12 hours a day playing championship manager on the Amiga as long as they budge over and let us join in. Showing my age a bit there, it's uh, actually called Football Manager these days, and I don't think Amigas still exist. Anyway, this week I'm chatting to Offside Royal Podcast's host and standard issue fave, Kate Borsay, who's going to tell us a bit more about a very busy week and snatching victory from the jewels of defeat, courtesy of a new sponsorship deal by games giant Football Manager. Over to Kate. I'm joined on the phone by journalist and co-host of the Offside Royal podcast, Kate Borsay. How are you? You've had a busy week. It's been a bit nuts this week, Jen. So the Offside Royal is made up of two podcasts. There's the Offside Royal regular show, which is mainly about men's football, but women talking about it. It's um, female fronted, a bit like your good selves. Mm -hmm. And the other show is 
the Offside Rule WSL edition, which is all about women's football and concentrates on the top league of women's football, which is the WSL, the Women's Super League, and also international football lionesses related stuff as well. And that's been running since the beginning of the season. So since September on the back of, of course, what was a an amazing Women's World Cup for everyone, really. So we started off at the beginning of the season without a sponsor because between the World Cup and setting up the show, we hadn't had any receptive conversations with any of the brands who we had pitched to. So we decided to get the show started and keep pitching it. And it got to the point last week where... However many weeks in, months in, we still hadn't been able to attract a sponsor. And Muddy Knees, who are the production company who we co-produce it with, had been paying to make the show, not mega bucks, but just paying to have it professionally produced and made sure that our guests were paid for their time. And it got to the point last week where they were like, we can't put any more money into this. They could no longer spare the money every week needed to basically fund that show just out of kindness and belief in the product. So last week we had the conversation and it was decided that we would close the show on Monday. And we did that basically. So we we had our last show on Monday and we put the message out on social media and it It just went nuts. It just, I think we knew it would cause a bit of a stir, but there's a big conversation there about how people interested in women's football and women's sports talk a really good talk in Mm -hmm. terms of brands and companies and stuff, but they don't necessarily see that through in reality. And we made that point, the Telegraph interviewed us and that article went out um, along with obviously what we'd said in the podcast. And I think a lot of people related to that and a lot of people got a bit angry on our behalf, I think, which was <laughs> really nice of them. And it just went, it went sort of semi-viral. It just, it, it absolutely blew up on Twitter. Loads of lovely messages, but loads of messages calling out people and saying, we can't start producing women's product and then have to close it down because it doesn't have backing. And, 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 you know, we're not talking about a huge amount of money here either. And just how we need to keep pushing women's content forward and, you know, pushing it forward for the good of all the new engaged audience, but also for the good of just making sure that it's cemented in all of our futures, in our daughter's futures, in our nieces, in our son's, you know, to make sure it's still a thing. And it, it just, it went absolutely nuts on Twitter. But the upshot is we had loads of people get in touch, big brands, little brands, people wanting to help. Someone set up a just giving fund for it, which we didn't want to go with because we don't want, we don't think people should be putting their hands in their pockets for this, you know, brands should be stepping up for this. And on Thursday, we had secured a sponsor until the end of the season for the for the WSL show so it's it's been a crazy old ride so it's a story that you know ultimately has a happy ending or or at least for now but I think there are a couple of really important points in that one as a podcaster I hate that word but as as a podcaster (laughs) myself I think it's very interesting so obviously everything went crazy Everyone was all over Twitter saying this is an outrage and, you know, we were all doing the old rate and review on Apple Podcasts saying how much we love it and, you know, hope it will come back soon and and all of this stuff. And I think there's an interesting point there about the way that people view content in a modern society and that people now don't feel that they should have to pay for content because obviously Mm. a lot of it is available for free online. But it takes time and money and resource to present that. So I think there should be like a little bit of a wake up call for people who consume that content as well. Yeah. That 
if you like something tell other people that you like it do the rate and reviews talk about yeah. it you know don't complain about there being adverts in podcasts yeah some of the comments leveled at us were well most people do podcasts for free no they it's- don't <laughs> It's just the reality of it. And, you know, believe me, we know we made the offside rule yeah. for free. We, we, we worked on it as a voluntary and we still do a load of voluntary stuff connected to it. We still go to football matches for free. We help at young girls football events. We speak, we go on panels, we do loads of stuff for free but I think our point was well it's a professional game women's football is a professional game and it deserves a professionally produced podcast but also and it's not free it's it's not free people may not be getting paid for it but they are incurring costs to do their it time. exactly yes, well well and they are still spending their time on yeah. it and I suppose then you could argue well well then your time isn't free I think it was kind of a couple of things really I suppose it has called out some brands on Twitter and, and it's raised the question of the fact that even though our kind of problem's been sorted, that, that there is a wider conversation about the disconnect between intention and reality. And yes. you can apply this to loads of different industries. You can say that you're behind an initiative for young girls or, I don't know, a mental health project, or you can say that, that you support things like women's football, but that takes money. It does take people to put their hand in their pocket and to commit and that's really important and I think that the problem with something like women's football is we've all been doing it for free people but you know coaches have been coaching it for free setting up women's and girls football teams for free there's a lot of that mentality around women's football people give up their time because they're passionate and they make it happen but it gets to a point where you need to say okay with a fully professional top league we need to treat this game professionally in more ways than one and we've seen visa come on board we've seen barclays come on board massively so yeah it's it's a little bit of that and then it's kind of a really hope one upshot of this is that if there are women's football journalists out there or there are people wanting to get into women's football or pitching women's football product or asking their boss if they would set up a women's football team at work that they might be able to use our example and say look that there really is something here there is support here, that there is tons of goodwill, tons of backing, and actually a really loyal, engaged audience. So if you're a newspaper editor and you're thinking about whether you can afford to keep your full-time women's football writer on, keep her on, because here's the evidence that there is something there, it's growing, it's really interesting, and there's a lot of support behind it. I know a lot of broadcasters and editors will be wondering whether to send people to the She Believes Cup, which is a tournament that the lionesses are are involved in 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 the u.s in march and they'll be thinking about whether to send people to the olympics for team gb which phil neville's in charge of and so i I kind of really hope that people can use us as a good example did it make you worried at all because as you say there's a lot of talk about women's football at the moment and I went out to the World Cup last summer and I listened to your podcast that covered the Women's World Cup last summer and you guys were chatting a little bit about this on the podcast at the time the stadiums were not at capacity it was not Mm. actually that well marketed even though we're told this is the biggest Women's World Cup ever this is going to be huge has this experience made you worry a little bit that maybe we're not as far ahead as we thought we might be i think it demonstrates what's happened to us and what happened at the at the world cup it demonstrates the fact that there is a disconnect you can't just put on a tournament and hope everyone comes you, you do need to educate people and it was interesting um uefa held an event in london this week about engagement at euro 2021 we, we've 
got a home Euros next year, which is going to be massive and everyone's building up towards that, obviously. And they were having a meeting about uh, with broadcasters, with brands, potential sponsors about uh, about how they make the most of the opportunity. And there were points there raised. I know Lindsay Hooper went, my co-host, co-founder of the Offside Award, and, and she raised a point about the fact that you could go into Nice and not have a clue that the Women's World Cup yeah, is on. Absolutely. So it, it still needs to be advertised. People need to be singing about it. Pe- people need to be promoting it. A bit like the Olympics in 2012, you know, we knew that that was happening and we all wanted a slice of it. It's a bit like that with women's football as well. You need to be aware of where your local ground is, what your local club is, how you can support and how you can engage. And yeah, you're right that, that there is still loads more to do in terms of making sure that sort of everyone's generally aware of that. I think the fact that we know that we've got this loyal, engaged, you know, passionate audience shows that you've got a really good foundation there yeah. to build on. Yeah, the market is there. So so mm. make some money out of it, guys. That's what you want, <laughs> isn't it? Come on. I think it's not being afraid to ask for money and knowing that the game is worth it. Brands do want to back women they do have a responsibility they have budgets there i mean a lot of the big corporates have budget there that they have to spend on stuff like this and so it's just bringing it into their sphere and i suppose calling them out if they say you know we had some brands contact us during the world cup and and afterwards and saying we're right behind you we love your pod blah 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 and it's like okay well if you're right behind us if we have a conversation with you and kind of follow up on that And then you say that you actually don't want to back it in any way or you don't want to put any money towards it. Then that's a bit weird. And these are the big brands, really, that I'm calling out rather than smaller ones. But, yeah, it is it is intention. It is saying that you support it and then actually supporting it, actually making a difference, providing funding, providing finances to make things happen. You know, for the ones that have the money, that have the resource, then fortune favours the bold. Yeah, 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 totally. And there is there, there are so many winning elements to this. We know that the proportion of women who are, are either entrepreneurs or they're heading up major, major corporations, a very high proportion of them play team sports at school. There is a direct correlation. We know that from research now. Even for our daughters, for our nieces, is for our whatever our friends kids it's important to back young girls playing team sports to back women playing team sports because it's not just about the sporty element it's about so much more well it's important to back girls and it's important to back women across all things so so why shouldn't sport be one of those things absolutely kate thanks so much and congratulations i'm glad that the wsl edition of the offside world podcast lives to fight another day yes absolutely thank you Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster filled our skies this week? This week, we were going to watch Snakes on a Plane, but we, again, we had a problem with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. I want to say right at the top of this, I'm slightly anxious because we did Contagion, and then like two days later, that coronavirus broke out. And now I'm thinking if I take the piss out of Independence Day, then who knows what next week will bring. But probably an improvement. Yeah, hopefully. Ironically, Independence Day is the day I'm having my hen do. Is it? Yeah. It's also my Auntie Jackie's birthday. And I still manage to forget it every year. Oh, um, sweet. I won't be pregnant then. <laughs> no. Sorry. 1996, Roland Emmerich, who we've done quite a few of these before. I think this is certainly his most... Well, let's just say this film could be completely summed up by three words. America, fuck yeah. 
it starts with the moon landing, right? Because America, fuck yeah. And then you go to the Pentagon, but you go to the Pentagon via the Iwo Jima statue because America, fuck yeah. Yeah. And then there's actually a point at which they show the Statue of Liberty and they actually go, doof, doof. Because there might as well just be people shouting, fuck yes, America, in those bits. Anyway, what happens basically is aliens come. They land on the moon. They send some messages out. Everybody starts to panic. I wish I had a space lift on my my sheet because I haven't because I would like to add people being woken by phones, by people going, I don't care if he's asleep, wake him. Yeah, yeah. Which happens a lot. So we start off with Robert Loggia at the the Pentagon being the very walking definition of the word grizzled, I think. (laughs) And then we go to some of our notional heroes, Bill Pullman, who is the president, and his wife, He's on the phone to his wife, Mary McDonnell, who is the first lady, obviously. And he's having a struggle. I think he's a Republican. And I've come to the conclusion I think he's a Republican because later the the, the only woman of colour in this film says she didn't vote for him. And as we know, most women of colour vote for Democrats, so I'm thinking. But he's, he's suffering and he's like had a, his, his approval ratings fallen below 40%, which I don't even think has happened to Trump. So he must be doing a terrible job of being... He's, he's too young. Yeah. Mm. Then we go over to hero number two, who's Jeff Goldblum, who's the kind of guy who rides his bike round at the office at work uh, and has a cardigan tied around his waist. I love Jeff Goldblum, yeah, but parts, parts of his character disappointed me. Yeah. Then we go to hero, in quotes, number three, who is uh, Randy Quaid. Love uh, Randy Quaid, big who, fan of the Quaid. Who we see in a North by Northwest parody or homage, North by Northwest immediately. Like, whenever I hear that now, I think that's what that little girl's label's going to be called when they eventually bring one out, isn't it? Kim Kardashian. Yeah. Her oh, kid. Yeah. Anyway, then we go to Iraq. Uh, I think it's the only time we spend in any country that's oh, not there's a, really there's a, Oh, there's a racist 30 seconds at the end where people are <laughs> thrusting <laughs> some spears in the air yeah. in celebration of America, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. yeah. Oh, that was uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> actually, the notional hero of this, actually the person who, who you always think of, Will Smith, yeah. doesn't arrive for the first 20 minutes of this film. As he keeps repeatedly saying, he does like to make an entrance, Hannah. <laughs> yeah, he does. It occurred to me that I don't think you could make a film like this now because he gets up, and he doesn't know what's going on at first, and he misses it for ages. He's really late to the game that this is what happens. Thinks it's an earthquake. Yeah. Now you just look and you'd have seventy-five notifications. <laughs> you you just yeah. be like, oh, there's been a thing that's happened. Back in '96, you had to look at what your neighbours were looking at. Yeah. Um, anyway, so eventually the aliens attack. All of these various heroes and their groups manage to converge on Area Fifty One because they do tick an awful lot of boxes in this, and they defeat the aliens. The end. America, fuck yeah. But of course, there's loads of other things to talk about, but you guys I haven't said anything in ages, so it's very feel free to chip in. It's very I thought, silly. I thought at the beginning, like the moon thing, I thought that was quite interesting. I thought, oh, are they going to make like a sort of semi-liberal point here about like actually the aliens are a bit pissed off because you basically colonised them, you colonising bastards. It's not really where they went, was it? America, fuck yeah. <laughs> They're worse than us. They're like locusts, Jen. They're just stealing planets, sucking them dry and moving on. It's almost like there's actually a plan in there of what we're going to do next. Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good point. And they're also, uh, 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 like, Thanks. Randy Quaid plays a particular kind of character in this that is uh, exists almost entirely in America, that's it. Which is, and it is a cliche, but it's like Vietnam War vet, disenchanted, obviously, becomes an alcoholic, lives in the middle of nowhere, like doing a bad job raising his children, right? I mean, this 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 character only really exists in American like folklore, and yet 
Even he gets to be, even the mad screaming bastard gets to be right in this film. Because America, fuck yeah. Sorry I'm late, Mr. President. <laughs> All of Randy Quaid's lines have to be shouted. Yeah. There was a lot of things. I also thought I'd like to put, haven't I seen that city destroyed before? on my card but I've got no spaces because Farewell Major Landmark took some pretty big hits yeah and Houston gets it again because Houston got it in the swarm didn't it and it gets it again in this the bees I miss the bees (laughs) (laughs) Um, there's so many like there's so many stupid things happening in it right? it's the most silly film Mary McDonald's death right what does she actually die of internal bleeding we hear she's not got a mark on her I think she dies of being rescued (laughs) That's what happens. Oh, yeah. And they say, oh, we can't stop it. But she's still, like, very much compass mentis at this point. As a chat, three seconds later, mummy sleeping. Mummy sleeping. Yeah, yeah, also, he did not deal with that situation very well. He lied to her and he basically lied to his child. Yeah, mummy sleeping. Don't tell her that. That is very confusing information. Also, kids just lost her mum and he goes, do you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to fight some aliens. She'll be fine. She'll survive on her own. She's scrappy. This film has so many fucking wisecracks. It, like, falls over itself in the wisecrackiness. And Will Smith. Are funny. Harry Connick Jr. and Will Smith talk to each other Oh, entirely. you've not described Harry Connick Jr. correctly. Redneck Totty, Harry <laughs> Connick Jr. Hang on, which one was that? Uh, his mate who's in it for, like, five minutes. Oh, yeah, he does. I don't know who Harry Connick Jr. I mean, I... Yeah, Redneck but... Totty. Yeah. Anyway, he, he, like, they speak to each other absolutely entirely in wisecracks. Because I actually was going to start to write a joke that was like, wisecracks, you know, smoke them if you've got them. Because it was just ridiculous. Like they condensed Top Gun into that yeah. five minute interaction. And it tries yeah. so hard to be funny. It does have one really funny joke in it, which is a news report that's going on in the background in which police are asking people not to fire their guns yes. at spaceships, which is actually funny. You might accidentally start an interstellar war. Yeah. <laughs> hey, my second major like plot fault with it is these things are supposed to be 15 miles wide, right, these spaceships. And when they are all downed, they immediately become approximately the size of, I don't know, a 747 or something. And, and they're all, like, wandering around the downed ships. Yeah, it's like the reverse Father Ted, isn't it? It's yeah. like small, far away. Yeah. Far away, oh, smaller now. Yeah, it makes no sense. They are not 15 miles wide ships that have come no. down. No, 15 kilometres, but even so. They're, like, as big as the cities they're... Yeah. Over, yeah, and, until and, they're down, and, and then also, they just like, oh, yeah, then they're not that big, are they? Yeah, yeah. Given that the plot of uh, Armageddon was about how something that was that size hitting the ground would actually cause like tidal waves and earthquakes and all of that stuff, well, you would think these falling down all over the 50, like just really nice firework display, <laughs> yeah. Maybe just... they're made out of like super fancy alien metal that is really light, yeah. Well. Good thing. And shrinks in size before it... Yeah. They're very... Can't explain um, that, to be Technology is much more advanced, Hannah. One other thing that I, I really wanted to mention, and that was there's... there's, I mean, we could get to our list, because I do have other things to say. But there's, like, a really great bit. Like, when Goldblum goes up onto the roof, and it's really bad. I mean, I'm going to take... My eyes are CGI for it, even though I don't think it's CGI. I think it's models. And oh my god, the, my eyes! I kept saying that as I was watching. It's not even so on my bad. card. The model work is so bad, and that's when he finally works out that it's a signal, and they're going to attack, and all of that. But then, when they do attack, and this building blows in, right? Despite the fact that this this has been going on for about two days at this point, there's a guy in the office just filing, right? And then like these these flames just like come in and engulf him, and I'm like. 
how can he be at work? Like, and if he is at work, employ that guy. Like, everybody needs a member of staff like that. Oh, aliens are invading. I'm just going to fill it up, finish up this file in. I just thought that guy probably had trouble at home, Hannah. Maybe. <laughs> he yeah. didn't want to go. Maybe. Didn't want to go back. But I think we've done gloriously well. Oh, I, I think, think I've done terribly. Done no, I've really, done really, really I've done that well. Really but badly. Can I just, mm. before we before we move on to that, just say that clearly the best character in this is Jeff Goldblum's dad. Dave, oh, yeah, David's dad is pretty good. Um, I loved him. He's, I mean, he is just he a, a series of stereotypes stitched together of a what, Jewish man. What's that guy called? Well, no, he's quite a famous actor, he is. isn't he? Yeah, so um, let's have a count up. I think I've got five. I think I've got four. I could probably have six, but I haven't thought of the Brexit analogy. Oh, I've only got six. I thought that people... Anyway, so I have thing you couldn't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. Well, I mean, there's dozens of things I couldn't do. But I couldn't not do the filing that I needed to do. I'd be that stupid idiot at work still doing that. So there's one. So many traffic jams because everybody was oh my God, to get out of their cars yeah. and look up at the sky. Um, they do say there's a little throwaway line on another news report where it just goes, there's been 1,500 fender benders in 30 seconds or something <laughs> stupid. Um, fancy hairdo gone bad. Um, when they first find Mary McDonald, she's she's all dishevelled, isn't she? She has been in a yeah. helicopter crash. Well, there you go, it's a fancy hairdo. Yeah, gone bad. even Farage's hair didn't survive that yeah. helicopter crash. And my eyes are CGI, even though I'm not entirely sure it is CGI. Oh, some of it's CGI. Yeah. You know, one that will be for, for Jen, my God, the burning, I can smell the burning. Yeah. All the fire stuff is just terrible. Yeah. Uh, Cassandra ignored, because obviously they had to wander around with Jeff Goldblum saying that for ages because you have to ignore them at the start. Also, just Roswell. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, Randy Quaid, yes. So that's five. And then the last one that I have... Oh, maybe that is only five. I thought I did better than that. Five. I think I've got six, actually, because I hadn't given myself Can You Smell Burning, but since you've awarded it to me, I'll have it. Um, Everything's on fire, Jen. Have you got a really bad sense of smell? Because we have to tell you about this one every week. I I'm never really sure what's fair to there's claim for that because there's, there's always something on there fire. Well, there you go. It's just a gate. There a is banker. something on your list that you've tried to have about seven times and we've said no and you and that's, finally have it on this one. Weather geek? No. No. Oh, what, you, what do you think? Uh, tunnel you'd be an absolute idiot to go through. Where was that? The one where she like goes through it and the flames come down and she has to go and jump in the cupboard mate i've got fuckloads then okay tunnel only an idiot would try to go through yeah. i wish that was the actual president even though i think he's a bit of a dildo he does like save oh the he's world. all right isn't he yeah, better than trump yeah i he mean does. it's a low bar isn't yeah. it fair so many helicopters yep ops i have not given myself provably bad science because i don't know if, like i assume it is but i, oh, don't, I don't fucking know, know. Prove or exactly it's up, so yeah exactly uh this disaster saved our relationship she doesn't deserve it she doesn't deserve it. She's a prick to him. He should just be like, fuck you, I've saved the world. Who? His wife. Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. He's a prick to her. Is he? He makes... The reason they split oh, up no, is because Oh, no, he's quite she, stalkery. She, no, the reason they split up is because she wants to follow his career and he thinks he should be enough for her. He's like, I was happy. And she said, oh, I wanted to do something important. We were in something important. I thought that what I took from it was that... She wanted him to be more ambitious, and he was like, I'm happy just sort of plodding along. And she was like, well, fuck you, then I'm off to do bigger things. He wanted her things. to leave her job at the White House so much that he punched the president. I completely missed that. Okay, well, anyway. Hence my problem with some of Jeff Goldblum's Also, character. he is quite stalkery at the beginning. That's a bit problematic. Although, to be fair, he is trying to tell her that the, yeah, world the world's in danger. <laughs> Can you smell burning? Sobbing child? 
And also... Oh, where's, where's the sobbing child? The daughter cries quite a lot, she to be does. fair. Munchkin. Um, and she doesn't get a name. Only a, a, uh, only a geologist slash man of natural science would wear this. The man in the like NASA place with the long hair who Data. clearly... Yeah, I don't know what his real name is. I don't know. He's data in uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation. But that guy, also Jeff Goldblum, he's not a natural scientist, but he is definitely wearing a necklace that they have decided is appropriate for a scientist. Wearing quite a low-cut vest top as well. Yeah, Yeah. I mean that wasn't a bit that I had a problem with. (laughs) (laughs) So another bit of Goldblum. So sorry, I think that was one, two, three. I think Jen's one, four, five, six, seven. Wowzers. She wow. didn't even have to think of a Brexit analogy. She didn't. And the Brexit analogy is it looks really big in the sky, but then when it comes down, it's shit. Is the Brexit analogy not America? Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll do deals with them. <laughs> Bad deals. Probably. Chlorinated chicken for everyone. My kind of like catch all Brexit analogy is turns out everything's shit. <laughs> um, okay, so I've done very badly. Pet survives carnage. Okay, boomer. Yeah. Which I'm very yeah. delighted I get to say. But as Pet survived Carnage, it was with during some Oh My Eyes the CGI as well. And also that weird trope that we're discovering that Carnage doesn't go through doors. No. It <laughs> just goes past doors. Absolutely. Yeah. Whereas the fire shot past him as Boomer. But especially it's especially ridiculous given that fire consumes oxygen and there will be oxygen in that. Yeah, anyway. Then I've got farewell major landmarks all over the shot. I mean, if I got a point for every one of those, I'd, have, I'd be like, woohoo, the champion. I think I've got bridge collapse. There's a bridge collapse? Or is that a tunnel? Is there a bridge collapse? I can't remember a bridge collapse. I made collapse. up a bridge. I can't remember one. You'd think there would have been, but... Maybe not then. I'm, I'm happy to be wrong on that one. Um, I can't have Emmerich for Haven't We Already Seen This Guy in a Disaster Film because he's not in it, but he is like he's around a lot. Can I not? Can I? I, funnily enough, I thought there was someone in this that we'd seen before. I can't remember who it was. And why not? Because Jen's going to Jen's one. And finally, where are the fucking women? So now there are female characters, but I wanted to have a little word about them. A female character who is Jeff Goldblum's missus, and the fact that that's how I remember her, she's... I think she's chief of staff. She's pretty high up. She's either press or she's chief she's, of she's staff. She's CJ, isn't she? I, I mean, not that I actually watch The West Wing, but for some reason I know the character CJ, who's Alison Janney. I've not watched is, The okay. West Wing. That's Sorry, basically but... the same. Okay. Yeah. She does seem to end up doing quite a lot of babysitting yeah. for a, a professional career woman. Also, none of, none of us know her name, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I love the way they go from... Like, really, really, like, top briefing stuff. The president doesn't know Area 51 exists. To briefing, and then, like, Jeff Goldblum's dad's there. Yeah. Like, like Will Smith's, like, stepkid's there. <laughs> just, like, anyone could just wander in now to this official briefing. It goes from, like, the ridiculous to the even more ridiculous. Yeah. So, she, she like, first lady, she's she's not much in it, apart from to, to kind of be Die fridged. Of to be fridged. Um, and die of nothing. Then Will Smith's girlfriend, Jasmine, is excellent. She's a stripper with a heart of gold and balls of steel. And she drives a truck and rescues people, including the first lady. So tip of the hat to her. She's great. Little kid. Munchkin. Again, don't know. Nancy, I think she's called, the little one. I think she's called because I remember thinking this was very strange name for someone quite young, born in the 90s or, or late 80s. I think she's called Patricia. 
Because I think at some point he says, look after Patricia for me. Oh. Which uh, does seem an incongruous name. Yeah, can neither confirm nor deny. And in fairness, and I say this with a, a, a massive pinch of salt coming, is that in a few of the scenes where there's people just in the background tapping away, scientists, etc., there are some women. But not one expert is a woman. No one that they go to for any answers is a woman. And in each of those scenes, there's a token woman. Um as spotted by their 90s hair. Yeah. So, poor show on the women. I mean, maybe the aliens were women. They what was wrong with that man's voice that sounded like he was gargling phlegm? Throughout? Oh, the man oh, in the, the office. The world yeah. who was like, oh my God. I think he's um, he's, he's known as Gay Man TM. <laughs> I, I've, he's been in other things because I've remembered like, fucking hell, that rasp is yeah. weirdly familiar. I need to call my lawyer. Oh, pause for way too long. Oh, no, forget my lawyer. Oh, God. Jen, you are the winner. So now I have to choose again. You do, but maybe but my you don't last have to choose, choose on there because it's quite... We always yeah. end up choosing and... Um, and we'll never be able to find the thing that yeah. I choose, so... Uh, oh, there was a yeah. line that was reminiscent of Airplane. They clearly, they did quite a lot of little nods to various films, and there was one where he goes, Randy Quaid goes... I picked the wrong day to stop drinking. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I picked the wrong week to stop sniffing glue. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it made me want to watch Airplane, but sure. America! Fuck yeah! Standard issue for all women. 